This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, how important is the media for our leaders, especially in a crisis? More and more, businesses are putting their leaders in front of us like this. Good morning, everyone. Delighted to be able to announce today that we have reached a new deal with New Zealand Rugby. When I get on a plane to return to New Zealand, it's actually a delightful feeling. But would it be better for us if the bosses stuck to their knitting instead of trying to manage the message in the media? Also, there's been no shortage of TV shows about the royal family down the years, but what is it about the latest one that prompted such a pile-on from the pundits here? What are these two thinking? It's very 2019, yes, but it's not very royal. But before all that, the biggest event of the year here in the media, the Rugby World Cup, wound up in Japan this weekend without New Zealand. But the All Blacks post-mortem is still going on in the media. A commentator says when the All Blacks lose, New Zealand cycles through the seven stages of grief. After their shock semi-final defeat by England, the Herald on Sunday newspaper blacked out its front page today. The Prime Minister felt compelled to defend the team's honour and a Union Jack-painted car had its windows smashed in at a pub called The Patriot in Devonport in Auckland. That was News Talk ZB at 3pm last Sunday and a news item all about the country coming to terms with defeat in the Rugby World Cup semi-final hours earlier. And smashing up the English pub's Union Jack Mini in Devonport presumably was part of the anger phase of grieving. Now New Zealand adults of course have lived through this sort of thing before but News Talk ZB was thinking of the children. Leading into last night there were 12-year-old Kiwis who had never seen their national heroes lose a World Cup game. But against the English, the New Zealanders could not break through an inspired defence, losing 19-7 to begin a nationwide malaise when the country is usually in long weekend holiday mood. Suffer the little children in this land of malaise, doomed to mark their lives by triumph and tragedy in Rugby World Cups every four years. But that rather odd news story, attributed to an unnamed commentator, felt a bit familiar to us here at MediaWatch. In fact, the story was almost the same, word for word, as the opening lines of one that the Sydney Morning Herald published online just a couple of hours earlier, under the headline, Morning Has Broken, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Now, the author of that was Ben Mackay, New Zealand correspondent for the Australian National News Agency, AAP. And the same story, riffing on New Zealand's rugby grief, appeared in several other Australian papers and news websites too, and TVNZ's website here recycled it as well. So not only were we schooled by the English in the rugby on Saturday last weekend, the Australians were writing our news copy on the Sunday. Not that you'd know it from News Talk ZB's inadequate attribution. Now, two hours earlier, News Talk ZB highlighted its own work when it plugged into ex-coach Laurie Maines for this perspective. Take a deep breath, New Zealand. Former All Blacks coach Laurie Maines' mantra is onwards and upwards after the Rugby World Cup semi-final loss. This was a major setback and a major disappointment. But you can't win these things every four years. You just can't win everything. Meantime, a Kiwi living in the UK says proud English supporters are lapping up the victory. Brooke Sullivan says celebrations look set to continue for a long time yet. I'm not going to hear the end of it. And neither did we, as it turns out, on Sunday here in New Zealand. One news that night began like this. Kia ora, good evening. The whole country's hurting. That's the word from All Blacks coach Steve Hansen just a few moments ago after his side was dumped out of the World Cup. 
The search for answers is underway, said TVNZ's Melissa Stokes, though the reason that England won was really no mystery. Her hoarse-sounding co-host in Japan, Simon Dello, summed it up in just two tight sentences. One team played ruthless, efficient, dominant rugby, but it wasn't us. The ABs have lost before, but never looked so ordinary. Meanwhile, in London, TVNZ correspondent Daniel Faitawa found an England fan who didn't need any words at all to sum up the match. How would you describe the game to the Herald on Sunday's late edition, as ZB News mentioned earlier, was in a funereal all-black with these sparse words in white. The all-blacks are out of the World Cup. If you want to read more, go to the sports section. But the rival paper, the Sunday Star Times, tried to lighten the mood a little with a cunning and punning front-page headline, Yoko Ono, oh a play on the veteran Japanese avant-garde artist, best known for her relationship with the late Beatle John Lennon, and the fact that the game was played in Yokohama. But, just over the page, a colour piece by correspondent Kevin Norkey was headlined like this. All Blacks Horror Show in Tokyo. Now, the All Blacks were based in Tokyo, so some people there may have been horrified, but the show was 30 kilometres away as the Japanese green pheasant flies in Yokohama. Now, Kevin Norkey's piece, mostly written before the result was known, was actually a thoughtful reflection on rugby fandom and fanaticism, which he concluded like this. You may be surprised just who best knows how we feel today. Ardent England fans are pretty much just like you and me. They are us. So today, if you need to feel better about yourself, find an England fan and give them a hug. You know you want to. And in a similar vein, the former Herald sports writer Liam Napier said in the UK's Guardian last Monday that New Zealand has now moved on from the hysterical outcry that followed World Cup failures between 1987 and 2011. But it seems sports journalists like him haven't stopped projecting their own assumptions onto the All Blacks. Liam Napier went on to write this. The hurt and suffering that will long linger is etched on the faces of the All Blacks as they struggle to suppress the emotional scars of their defeat to England. The All Blacks captain, Kieran Reid, cut a shattered figure. His inner wounds may never properly heal. But on the other hand, it is entirely possible they will all recover completely and quite quickly from the intense disappointment of last weekend's defeat and be happy, whole and healthy in the years ahead. The Guardian's correspondent here reckoned that Kiwis were gutted but gracious in defeat. New Zealanders, as is their way, conceded defeat gracefully and were soothed by the impressive and admirable prowess of the England side. But there was not so much grace from Radio Sports' Martin Devlin, who reckoned that the English excellence sucked. Hey, what a... In men it sucks. In men are we going to talk about this? But the reality is... They're better than us. They play better than us. What else can you say? Martin Devlin closed his radio show last Sunday with this tribute to his heroes, soundtracked with what he said was one of the All Blacks' top tour bus sing-along tunes. By the way the hill I don't know if you live your life vicariously through others, but I'm such a pathetic specimen, I do, yeah. You know, it's not like these guys I'm heroising, but I do adore them, you know, because there's so much about being an All Black to me that is just so goddamn impressive. I get to spend a lot of time around them, and you know, I'm not saying in a kind of friendly way or anything, but I get to observe and you know the dignity they carry themselves and the way they stood there and applauded last night made me feel pretty special and pretty proud. Now that sort of dewy-eyed soppiness backed up an earlier snipe from England coach Eddie Jones, 
that New Zealand's rugby reporters were fans with keyboards, or in Martin Devlin's case, one with a microphone as well. But there was an edge to one question for the outgoing All Blacks captain from one New Zealand reporter in the post-match press conference last weekend. Kieran, Steve mentioned before, uh, I think you said we needed to get hungry and desperate before it was too late. From your point of view, from the, from the players' point of view, I suppose, did the team turn up with the right attitude tonight? Yeah, I think we did. You know, you, you've seen how hard we worked out there. And that was a pretty standard question, a predictable one even, for a team that was favoured to win a big game but ended up easily second best on the day. But it was Steve Hansen's response to that which turned it into a story for the New Zealand media, as TVNZ sports presenter Andrew Savile said on TVNZ One News. Uh, Steve Hansen said all the right things uh, today in the just-completed media conference, but the mask slipped a little bit last night when he defended the idea that the All Blacks hadn't turned up to the game with the right attitude. Here's the captain and then the coach's response. I think it's quite a disrespectful question to suggest that the All Blacks turned up not being hungry. They're desperate to win the game. Because I've asked them at half-time to get hungrier, doesn't mean to say they didn't turn up to be hungry. There's a big difference. And uh, if you want to spend some time outside, I'll, I'll give you a rugby education on that one. TVNZ's Andrew Savile was quick to insist that Steve Hansen wasn't seriously calling out the reporter in question. Look, it clearly wasn't serious, the offer, but it just goes to show how passionate the All Blacks and their coach are. But it certainly was taken seriously by Martin Devlin on News Talk ZB. There has been some niggle going on between some of the journalists in New Zealand who I think are deliberately provocative trying to get the clickbait. That's that's my point. Hey, if that's how they want to do their jobs, Andrew Gordy's a friend of mine, if that's how you want to do your job, fine. As Martin Devlin said there, the controversial question came from News Hub's man in Japan, Andrew Gordy, who picked up the ball and ran with it himself on News Hub at six the next day. Well, Andrew Gordy's with us now, and being asked to step outside seems a strange response to a legitimate question, Andrew. Hi, Mikey. Obviously, emotions were running pretty high here last night, and understandably so. But look, I think when you consider the sort of start that England made to this match here last night, they scored early, they exploded out of the blocks, they were dominant up front at set-piece and at the breakdown, the sorts of areas you would normally expect the All Blacks to control. It seemed like a fairly reasonable question to ask, especially when you consider that Steve Hansen has twice this year referenced his team's attitude after defeat to the Wallabies in Perth and again after a subpar first-half display against Namibia at this World Cup. And as you would have heard in the piece, it really was his own words. He was asked in the press conference what he said to his team at half-time. He said he needed them to be more hungry, more desperate before it was too late. It was his own words, really, that provided the context for the question. And let's face it, it's a question you would ask of any team, any coach, any player after a defeat like this on an occasion such as this. But obviously it evoked an emotional response. And that sounds fair enough to us. But at least one of Martin Devlin's listeners hadn't had a sense of humour failure over the matter. Martin, what should Steve Hansen have said at the press conference uh, is if you want to step outside, I'll ask Eddie Jones to give us both a lesson on how to play rugby. I like that, James. But Martin Devlin wasn't necessarily wrong about the clickbait. A steady stream of peripheral World Cup stories with teasing trailers were pushed out online and to users' phones, especially during the many days when there were no actual matches to report on. The Herald's Dylan Cleaver nailed it last weekend when he wrote that this was the end of an era of all-black Rugby World Cup dominance, but all good things come to an end. It stings a little bit, like undiluted Detto on an open sore. But it's the end of the World Cup, not the world. Let's give magnanimity a go. Good advice there, not just to sad and sore All Blacks fans, but also his fellow reporters and editors.
Even before Steve Hansen and Kieran Reid led the All Blacks out for their last game as All Black coach and captain respectively, the media were churning out speculative stories about who will replace them. New Zealand Rugby's Chief Executive Steve Chew was giving nothing away on Radio Sport when he was put on the spot by Martin Devlin. Are you honestly saying that none of this has actually happened up until now? Surely that you're not sitting here as November approaches with four or five weeks. You must have some people in mind. There must have been some approaches. It would just seem weird and unlikely that that wouldn't have happened. Well, the All Black Coach is quite a special job, so there's a group of people that kind of self-select and would be available. So, as I said, everybody who we think would be interested in the job, who we think are in the mix, know exactly what we're doing, and they'll be ready for the moment when we reach out for them. Now, Steve Chew is also stepping down at the end of this year, and whoever ends up in the trio of top jobs at the sharp end of our biggest sport will need to know how to handle the media. Now, some say that handling the media these days is as essential to success in modern business leadership as handling the actual business you lead, as we'll hear. And one who seems comfortable with all that is the man in charge of rugby's main broadcaster here, Sky TV boss Martin Stewart. Last month, he announced Sky's big new deal for exclusive rights for top-grade rugby, not just in the usual way, via the media, but also direct to the public on YouTube. Good morning, everyone. Delighted to be able to announce today that we have reached a new deal with New Zealand Rugby. This revolutionary deal will see Sky deepen its investment at all levels of the game. And he ended it with a quick gag involving a rugby ball being fired at him from stage left. So it just remains for me to say thank you to everyone at New Zealand Rugby and to all of our Sky teams who worked so hard to get this done. Oh, look, we caught it. A little riposte there to those who had been loudly proclaiming that Sky had dropped the ball on sports rights. In New Zealand took a similar approach, unveiling its new chief executive, Greg Foran. That news was also sent to Air New Zealand's clients, customers and AirPoints accounts holders in a personalised email which began like this. Greg, who is a world-class New Zealander, will take up the position in the first quarter of next year. Greg has a massive passion for our country and the role that Air New Zealand can play in its future success economically, socially and environmentally. Now, this email urged recipients to watch a YouTube video featuring Greg Foran at home in his all-black shirt to learn more about him. Air New Zealand, to me, is one of the world's most iconic brands. When I get on a plane to return to New Zealand. It's actually a delightful feeling. And after talking about how much he missed New Zealand sausage rolls, Chardonnay and cream donuts while he was working overseas, Greg Foran ended with this thought on the importance of trust. Trust is incredibly important. Part of it is letting people achieve their highest potential. If you can build that trust with your staff to stride out and achieve things they didn't think were possible, you can do that if you build trust. Air New Zealand is just, I think, critical to New Zealand as a country. However, being out on the front foot personally on social media channels doesn't always work well for business leaders. Take the case of Davy Hughes, the proud boss of Levin-based outdoor clothing company Swazi. After years of manufacturing exclusively from this local base, he took a difficult decision to move some work for some garments to Thailand, and he announced it like this in a personal fireside chat-style video on YouTube. There'll be a change in focus on our base layers and fleeces, and we'll be manufacturing those outside of Swazi. In actual fact, we'll be manufacturing them offshore in Thailand. So I know that over the years that, uh, that we've really held fast to the fact that every single item that we 
made was made right here in New Zealand. But the fact of the matter is, for us to keep up with that demand and be able to, to satisfy you, the customer, we are going to have to take some of those uh, basic products offshore. But when the New Zealand Herald picked up on that, this headline appeared on its website. After 25 years keeping it local, Kiwi Clothing Company moves production offshore. After which an irritated Davy Hughes climbed onto Facebook to say this. We are not moving offshore. At present, there are seven garments being made in Thailand. All our high-performance technical gear is still being manufactured right here in Levin. The machinists that we're sewing on our fleece line are all keeping their jobs. Davy Hughes got a pretty prompt clarification from the Herald on that, but all in all, being proactive on social media didn't really work out well in that instance. So, is it really important whether or not we see business leaders a lot in the media and whether the public is familiar with them? It could be when push comes to shove for their businesses, according to this. Well, new research suggests it's not enough for company leaders to front up during a crisis. They actually need to build up the public's trust in advance. Media researcher Incentia has studied the response of four leaders to crises that have been uh, in the coverage recently, and the coverage they've also received for it. The media monitoring company Incentia had looked at media coverage of four crises and how they were handled by leaders. Mark Zuckerberg under fire for the spread of hate on Facebook, the response of Boeing's boss to the crashes of 737 MAX planes earlier this year, Rugby Australia's handling of the Israel Folau crisis and Jacinda Ardern's response to the Christchurch mosque attacks. Ascentia's head of insights, Nairi Crawford, told Morning Report last Monday that this showed the public trust in leaders is enhanced by seeing them more often in the media. Now, it makes sense that a leader with a positive public profile built up in the media will have a head start when a crisis happens. But is it actually better for us if companies and their leaders stick to their knitting instead of trying to manage the media? A question I explored with Ascentia's Nairi Crawford. Ultimately, we're trying to look at how do media define leadership? What kind of uh, contribution do media make to the idea of leadership currently? So we started with highest value companies in New Zealand and Australia. And the main thing that we found for uh, corporate leaders is really that they are quite absent on social media. And it's more about trying to get people away from, I guess, massive risk aversion that there is with social media and being open and being out there that comes in a, in a corporate structure and moving slightly further towards being more connected with your audience. I mean, one of the case studies in this research was Boeing and how mm. it handled this crisis, the crashes of the 737 MAX planes um, and its chief executive, Dennis uh, Muhlenberg. But he was criticised for being absent or even too silent mm. after the crashes, uh, so the, the opposite sort of approach. But if he and the company didn't really know or couldn't say definitively what had caused the crashes that all the information wasn't in, why is it necessarily wrong to keep a low profile just because, you know, the media is out there wanting comment? A lot of that is really the, the crux of what we're finding in this leadership series is I, I don't think that the expectations that leaders place on themselves or businesses place on themselves is the same as what the public do. So for in the case of Boeing, it wasn't only absence. It was also that they communicated incredibly defensively. It wasn't a case of, we don't know. It was a case of, well, that's, it's not the plane. There's not an error. We think that was a pilot error. Huh. And it was only after the second crash that it became clear that uh, there was a, a software error. But the absence of them only creates space for speculation. And when you're an incredibly large organisation like Boeing, it just 
led to a lot of discussions around their financial performance and if potentially there was an issue with the planes and if they had cut costs to meet demand for the planes, if there was an issue with how those planes were being certified and their relationships with the FAA. There was this huge uh, space for all of those conversations to happen and they weren't in them. If Boeing had done one thing differently and if they had made a proactive decision to ground the planes, if they had made that decision, they would have taken an initial financial hit that would be significantly less than the financial hit they're they're going to take from not acting. And the fact that they have three, at least three massive active lawsuits against them from their own shareholders, from pilots, and from the families of the victims of the plane. It's easy to get into a a space of, oh, well, if we don't know, it's easier to say nothing. I don't think that's acceptable in a current media environment. I think because there's... Because it looks like you're not taking responsibility. it, It absolutely does. And it's... I'd rather know that you don't know that you know that it's unacceptable and that you're going to do something about it. There's not a harm in communicating that after these type of events. I'm thinking of a separate situation, well out of the scope of your report, but the almost the opposite of that. For example, when the Pike River mine disaster mm. happened, you had um, Peter Whittle, the chief executive of the Pike River Company. He was looked upon as a man of calm who was communicating, frequently talking to the media, mm. fronting every press conference. People responded really well to him, and yet, all the things we've learned after that, there were all sorts of things going on that he was not talking about, real problems at the company. So there, I mean, the sort of tactics you're talking about, being present, communicating this stuff, but that wasn't helping the public interest at all. But also if this is about knowing leaders before a crisis and being able to build up that bank of trust so that people believe you, it means that when you are communicating things that you probably don't want to, the reaction to it isn't going to be as significant. Well, with that in mind, Air New Zealand emailed its customers directly to uh, urging them to watch this YouTube video all about the new chief executive, uh, Greg Foran. Is that an example of what you're talking about, business leaders using social media channels and, and letting them know who they are? You aren't going to know someone from, from one particular video, and I think a lot of that is also there's this underlying narrative about CEOs in New Zealand, about them not being from New Zealand. A lot of that video is also about really... Uh, demonstrating to customers that he is from New Zealand and he's re- he's returning home to lead this business, uh, whereas it, when it could have easily been like Air New Zealand picks Walmart CEO to lead them. Uh, so it, it is a start, but a lot of this is never going to be done with, with one piece of content. It's about having a sustained idea and plan around how you can make your leader more visible. In, in communications particularly, there is, there's been a tendency to not necessarily use them all the time. If they're not, if you don't believe them to be particularly media savvy, you won't put them up. You want to show a really diverse range of voices from your organisation, which is great. But it does mean that in times of crisis and when you've got a front bad news, you only put the CEO up then. So it only can only decrease trust in a CEO because you only ever see them in a difficult situation. But with this rather soft video of Greg Foran mm. to use him as an example. There he is in his all-black shirt, yeah, relaxed at home, nice. talking about how much he missed cream donuts and sausage rolls while he was away. Mm. You know, I'm thinking, that's not what I want to know about Greg Foran later when there's a crisis issue and we're thinking, well, what's this new leader? What's his metal? I'm thinking, well, what was his role at Walmart? How did he do there? And, you know, in this cutthroat world of US retail on that massive scale, um, you know, those sorts of things are not addressed at all. So... That, for me, 
isn't going to help at all. I'm going to be more suspicious of his handling, his response to a crisis mm. because uh, they've tried to soft soap me as a guy who's sentimental about New Zealand when that doesn't matter to me if he's running an important company. I don't have the same reaction to it as you. Um, I took a, I took a quick poll with my team yesterday. We all we all watched it. And it was very much like, oh, yeah, that's nice. No one thought it was in-depth or a, a true representation of, of what he is and what he, what he intends to do with the brand. But it was like, okay, that's, it's nice to see who he is. Now, uh, since he became the boss of Sky about six or seven months ago, Martin Stewart, uh, the new leader, has been really out there in his mm. social personally. Uh, tweeting, fronting announcements in a almost sort of Steve Jobs style, <laughs> his little black jumper, and very at ease it seems in front of a camera. Do you think this is an actual a good effective part of leadership? This is the the right direction for them to be heading, and when you think of what what he walked into, um, when you had you've had a CEO previously who was quite aggressive, and when he did comment, it was generally generally indicated that he quite didn't quite understand the, the, the tone of his audience or where where his industry was necessarily going. And yet a very effective leader for the shareholders of that company. They had no interest mm. in replacing him over the, what, 20-plus years that John Follett, the US-born businessman, was leading that company. He did to a certain point, though. He really effectively led that business during the time that that business was at, was at its height. Hasn't necessarily future-proofed his business. That's a big part of what Sky have to portray now is that it is a completely different attitude, that it is an attitude that has to completely win over old customers and potential new customers and the New Zealand public in general because now we're just stuck in a content, sports content right debate where people are going to have to buy multiple subscriptions to multiple services to watch one sport. There's a huge task ahead of them to be able to build trust back and I think him being at the head of it is the, is the right way to approach it. You know, it makes sense to me, uh, looking at your research and the lessons that um, leaders could take from it uh, in business or politics or wherever, that leaders with a public profile they've built up in the media, that bank of trust mm. uh, or recognition you referred to, will have a head start, you know, if and when they have to confront a crisis. But is it actually better for us, the public, if, you know, companies and their leaders are totally focused on sticking to the knitting rather than actually trying to manage the media? I, I would argue that that is actually a core part of the, the function of, of the head of a business. I think one of the things that I find really fascinating about this field is that the, the cultural context around the world and leadership has massively changed. How people consume content is different. How people choose to follow and support people is completely different. There are new entire economic infrastructures around um, content creators and being able to follow someone on a one-to-one. And the amount of money and trust being put into people that can create personal connections with their audience is is huge. And it's it's in that more disruptive space that I feel like that's capitalising on a desire, especially from younger audiences, to be able to know someone and connect with someone and talk to them and take take their word for what it is that they recommend to you. It, it's used to present issues. It's used to get political support. It's used to get votes. It's used to get people to buy your T-shirt or buy your makeup. It's entirely 
um, it's entirely based on personal and one-to-one connection. Because if you think of how people uh, consume and interact now, there's I know I have a whole range of colleagues that I never see in person. I only ever see digitally. But to me, that's still a one-to-one connection. That feels more connected to me than it does sitting in a room full of 20 people, and they might be one of those 20 people. So it's a it's a completely different shift to how people want to be talked to. And then when you look at um, the rise of very of aggressive populist leaders, that's appealing to a demographic that's outside of that desire. So there's also a backlash towards that. It's not specifically about social as much as it is about an approach. So I see CEOs do it with media generally as well, is that they don't want to front something or they don't want to talk about something that's, if they don't have to, they don't consider it to be part of their their kind of core responsibilities, that there's other people that will do that for them. And that's that's not going to be the most effective way for people to know who you are. Um, and when people know who you are and have seen you before and have experienced what you stand for and how you respond to things, that's the best way to be believable. And it's being believable that is going to be the most important thing in a crisis or if you want new customers or if you want you know, new business partners. All of those things are incredibly important. I, w- I would often read, and the absence of um, a core leader or a core figurehead makes you wonder, well, why isn't this important enough for them to comment on? Well, one use, I guess, that uh, leaders, whether in business or politics, can put this to is it, it kind of gives them an option of bypassing the news media, possibly, potentially. Mm. One of the interesting things about the research that you've done here is that you're looking at the coverage of these crises and the perception largely via media reporting, mm. media, news media, analysis and interpretation of how these leaders have performed. But if you have leaders that are good communicators, can use those channels, is there an option for them to sort of bypass news media and get messages directly out to the public and something the media should maybe be wary of? No, and there's a lot of issues at play in that, obviously, with um, the voracious nature of news and content now where it is just you, you take you'll kind of take anything, turn it into information, be able to have, have information and content to post. I think it's not so much that people would avoid news media. I don't think that would be a smart strategy in any, in any sense of the word. I mean, the way that I view media, and I mean, I am a media analyst, so this is potentially a bit biased, but social media might start a story. It might start a piece of information. Verification always comes from known media sources. The trust and believability in media brands is still there regardless of of how people consume it. Um, There's always going to be a need to interact with media. Social feeds will just become this constant wheel of promotion and people will get completely turned off and they they still want verification of what people are saying and that, that is what comes from media now. That was Nairi Crawford, the head of insights at the media monitoring company Icentia, talking to me there about Leading Through Crisis, a new report analysing how four leaders, including Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, handled a major news crisis. It's the third in a series of reports on what good leadership looks like in the media. And you can hear more about that from Nairi in the online version of the story. It's on the Media Watch section of the RNZ website and the RNZ app. Just look for the title, Should Our Leaders Be More Out There in the Media? 
Now, one of the overseas leaders whose media crisis management was analysed in that Icenti report was Facebook's chief executive Mark Zuckerberg and how he responded to criticism for hate on his platform after the Christchurch mosque attacks. This week, Mark Zuckerberg announced a new response to concerns about Facebook's influence on the flow of information, Facebook News, a new tab for Facebook users in the US, curated by professional journalists and featuring content from some of the biggest names in news in the US. Jeremy Rose took a look at that on Midweek Media Watch this week with Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and you can catch that on our RNZ webpage, the RNZ app, or the Media Watch podcast feed. Television has changed. In fact, television is is just an old-fashioned term now. No one talks about television anymore, and free-to-air television is withering and dying. That was the former TV3 star host Paul Henry on RNZ's Checkpoint recently, talking about the decline of the medium which made him famous and rich, free-to-air TV. But just a few days later, a TV show that had just aired free-to-air in the UK was being talked about an awful lot in the media here. Prince Harry has given a candid interview alongside his wife Meghan in a new documentary. It aired in the UK yesterday to mixed reviews as the couple talk about struggling with the limelight and constant media attention since the beginning of their relationship. For a more in-depth look, we're joined by royal correspondent Victoria Arbiter. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning. TBNZ's breakfast show last week, the day after Meghan and Harry, an African journey, aired in the UK. And on the same day later, on News Talk ZB, Heather Duplessy Allen had the same royal reporter on about the same show. Victoria Arbiter, by the way, is next to talk about Harry and Meghan and how sorry we feel for them right now. Well, that was sarcasm and not sorrow there from Heather Duplessy Allen, one of many in our media, it seems, with a pretty low opinion of the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. Victoria, what are these two thinking? Well, uh, that, in the, is, that there is the million-dollar question, and it's interesting, actually, because there's been a very mixed reaction. Victoria Arbiter, by the way, is the correspondent on the UK royal family for the US-based network CNN, and she's also the daughter of Dickie Arbiter, who's made a long career also out of talking about the royals in the world's media. Royal reporting, like royalty itself it seems, also passes down the generations. And last week, Victoria Arbiter went on to tell Heather Duplessy Allen this about that headline-making British TV documentary. I think you would have to have a heart of stone to not look at these two and feel an element of sympathy. But of course, this is not the royal way we are accustomed to. But Heather Duplessy Allen wasn't the only one in our media who didn't sympathise. On TVNZ's Seven Sharp show, Hilary Barry psychoanalysed Harry and Meghan like this. And I'm no expert, but you know when you're in a relationship, sometimes one of you will be down and the other is there to pick you up and cheer you up and help you. And I feel like they are both heading down the rabbit hole together of negativity and woe is me. And mm-hmm. They need to be picked up. They just need to... Oh, my goodness. Mm, you know, they have such a privileged life. Mm. I'm sure it's hard. I'm yeah. sure... I, I have no idea how hard. I'm sure it's hard, but come on. Yeah. Now, that chit-chat on Seven Sharp was actually advertising the documentary on TVNZ1 last Monday, which gave us all the chance to see what it was that our media front people were so uptight about. As this journey wore on, another human story emerged. 
of a man still wrestling with the legacy of his background, of his birth, and the tragic death of his mother. Every single time I see a camera, every single time I hear a click, every single time I see a flash, it takes me straight back. Megan and Harry, An African Journey, was built on ITV News reporter Tom Bradby's exclusive access to the couple on their recent tour of South Africa, Angola, Malawi and Botswana. And as it turned out, the programme wasn't entirely focused on the unhappiness of the royal couple. This is Cape Town. One of the world's most beautiful playgrounds. If you're rich and largely still if you're white. 50 years later, the sheer presence here of a mixed-race couple at the heart of the British establishment is, to many, a beacon of hope and change. She's our African princess because she's the first one of uh, colour in the, in the royal house and that makes us really happy. It's quite a struggle when you grow up as a mixed-race child. Either you're not white enough or you're not black enough. But when the doco did zero in on balancing royal public duties and private lives, Tom Bradby found common ground with them like this. Last year, I had to take some time off work to wrestle with my own mental health issues. And as I watched Harry here, it was obvious to me just how much pressure he felt under Interesting stuff, which led Tom Bradby to end Meghan and Harry and African Journey with this open question. If taking it one day at a time does not prove enough, if this is existing, not living, what then? But that didn't move Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB the next day. For some, no matter what your advantage in life, it is all about the attitude, even in the most gilded of existences. Misery and woe is still at hand, if you don't care to see beyond yourself. Mike Hosking described the royal couple as simpering, the Duchess as an airhead and Prince Harry as flaky. And as a couple, he said, they simply weren't as stoic as senior royals need to be. And while he was at it, Mike Hosking also had a dig at TVNZ and free-to-air TV for being late to the party on this programme. What a remarkable thing it has been in this day and age to know of a documentary's existence for well in excess of a week for it to be one of the bigger talking points globally but for us here at the bottom of the world to have to wait for the ship to dock and the port and for the horse to grab the film reel and transport it to the state broadcaster for last night's viewing and you wonder why linear television's in the trouble it is but there mike hosking was way behind his wife kate hawksby on the same network a full week earlier she'd given the royal couple a similar slagging for what she called un-british hypocrisy But what they've also done here is tried to portray themselves as victims. It's very 2019, yes, but it's not very royal. Well, it's also very 1981 to 1997, Kate Hawksby could have added. Prince Harry's mother was living proof that a woman marrying into royalty from outside royal circles could quickly become miserable and suffer years of criticism for an insufficiently stiff upper lip. In spite of all the privilege she enjoyed, she even died with the press and the paparazzi in pursuit. So apart from their apparent lack of empathy and their surfeit of spite, there's one other thing these talk radio commentators, criticising both the current royal couple and the medium of free-to-air TV, have in common. All of them were big names on free-to-air TV here in the past, but not anymore. Is it really a coincidence that they turn quite so cranky when they see celebrities on the screen who prove that you really still can pull a big audience on old-fashioned national television? 
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media on Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night. And then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.